You're listening to a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. So welcome to the new New Deal, folks. I'd like to start by acknowledging that we are on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. We've made an absolute mess of their country and we owe it to them and to ourselves to pay the rent and make it right. Every now and then I ask myself which era of human history I would decide to be born into if I were magically given that choice. And I always end up picking this one because we live in one of the most decisive moments in human history. We all have the power to make the only home we have into a garden of paradise or a living hell, and we know it which means that every action we take has meaning and every human alive today has the chance to live a momentous life. We could use the wisdom and the technology that we've built up over thousands of years to build a civilization where everyone can live long, rich and satisfying lives. We could live in a world where we look after nature and nature looks after us, where we look after each other and no one is left behind. And in this world, Every time we flick a switch, we feel good about it because we know that the light that we see is powered by the sun and the wind. In the mornings, we get woken up by birdsong instead of traffic noise because all the vehicles are electric and we've filled our cities with plants to cool them down. The air is clean, it's getting cleaner. Renewable jobs are booming, obviously, but so are jobs in remanufacturing, regenerative agriculture and reconstruction, the new construction sector that remakes old buildings to use less energy. The trash mining industry is really taking off too. We're finally respecting the rights of First Nations people to manage their own country, and they're working miracles in bringing the land back to life. The summers, did I mention the summers? The sky's blue, the sun is yellow, Uh, Long weekends, camping in the bush, lazy afternoons with kids at the beach and not a P2 mask in sight. So we can win this future, right? It's in our power. Or we can knowingly keep on burning the coal and the gas and the oil that makes this future impossible. The fight to save human civilization from itself is an adventure story. It's a story we never asked for, but if we can get it right, we can write the ending that we want. So welcome to the new New Deal, where you're going to hear what an emergency speed mobilisation on climate would look like in practice. We have an expert panel to take you through the process of building a zero carbon economy at the speed that science requires. Our lineup includes John Altman, an emeritus professor at the Australian National University, who's a foundation director of two excellent indigenous run organisations, the Gargat Ganji Trust and Original Power. Blair Palesi, who's currently working with Cities for Climate Action, was the founding CEO of 350 in Australia, a former board member of Greenpeace, and is here on behalf of Climate Risk, who work at the pointy end of scary climate change statistics and what they mean for our economy. (coughs) Catherine Wells, who has 20 years of experience as an environmental lawyer and policy expert, including chairing the South Australian Premier's Environmental Advisory Board and serving as the National Vice President of the Australian Conservation Foundation, and Philip Sutton, Manager of Research and Strategy for Transition Initiation, which works to catalyse the urgent transition to a sustainable economy. Philip has a rich history of environmental campaigning and was co-founder of Safe Climate Australia and co-author of the excellent book Climate Code Red. Please give our fantastic panellists a huge round of applause.
Um, I'm just going to take a brief moment to note that this is an all-white panel, um, which always feels particularly weird when we're talking about uh, uh, something uh, you know, like the New New Deal, which um, as Leitz probably partly inspired in terms of the name by the Green New Deal. Um, those Green New Deal campaigns around the world are making absolutely incredible headway by taking a truly intersectional approach to climate campaigning, recognising that you can often trace the root causes of the climate crisis, racial oppression and economic injustice back to the same systems that allow a handful of powerful people to divide and conquer everyone else. Just to be clear, this is not about blame, it's about doing better, right? So our environment movement as a whole will be stronger if it looks more like the diverse communities that we're part of. So um, I'd just like to encourage folks, when we leave this room, let's have some conversations about why that often isn't the case in our movement and what we can do to, to make that better. Um, Um, and with that, I would like to invite John Altman to tell us why the climate emergency means that we'll need to politely invite in, uh, Indigenous peoples to deploy their extensive native title rights and interests to help fix the mess we've made. Thank you, Miriam, and uh, good morning, everybody. Um, whatever new New Deal the nation conjures up to address the climate crisis. It has to be inclusive of Indigenous Australians and their renewable energy and decarbonising assets. Um, I, um, it has to be inclusive of Indigenous people in there. Sorry. Well, I need my glasses. <laughs> I titled my presentation, A Postcolonial Climate Emergency Deal for Indigenous Australians, emphasising from to signal a critical irony. Most settler Australians will become increasingly dependent on Indigenous Australia for the nature's future viability. European invasion in 1788 coincided with the carbon-powered industrial revolution. Invasion saw the destruction of the Aboriginal economy as the frontier expanded, while settler wealth was built on extraction of non-renewable mineral and fossil fuels and industrial agriculture that rapidly reduced natural capital through land clearing, water over-allocation, changed fire regimes, pollution, and loss of wildlife habitats. The decline in biodiversity and the ecological transformation of the continent occurred at breathtaking pace, only matched by the rate of dispossession of the continent's original inhabitants. And in making my presentation, I want to acknowledge Indigenous people in Northern Australia with whom I've worked for over 40 years and have always welcomed me onto their country. From the 1970s, an indigenous minority has managed to reclaim a proportion of their ancestral lands, deploying land rights and native title laws. Many parts of the indigenous estate that now covers 50% of Australia, as shown in this map, are relatively environmentally intact. 
and the black dots there are the remote Indigenous communities, of which there are about a thousand on that Indigenous estate. Even these parts are not in pre-1788 condition, having everywhere experienced the impact of invasive species and now rapid climate change. Indigenous landowners have generously included much land as Indigenous protected areas that today cover half of the Australian conservation estate. And you can see that in this slide. Now, to very briefly address questions posed to this panel. Have we got any economic plans on the table? The answer is yes. Not just plans, but Indigenous actions and proven outcomes. Since 2006, the West Arnhem Land Fire Abatement Project, or WALFA, has reduced emissions by 2.7 million tonnes carbon dioxide equivalent through skillful savannah burning over 28,000 square kilometres of tropical forest. WALFA participants have been paid a paltry $14 a tonne, but have nevertheless performed consistently for 13 fire seasons reducing emissions by more than an average 200,000 tonnes CO2 equivalents per annum. And that's demonstrated uh, graphically in this slide. Wolfer's success saw it expand to Arnhem Land Fire Abatement Northern Territory Limited, an all Aboriginal consortium operating over 80,000 square kilometres of Arnhem Land and reducing emissions by up to 800,000 tonnes per annum purchased under the Emissions Reduction Fund or the so-called Climate Solutions Fund, as well as on the voluntary market. They're just the participants uh, in Alpha. This activity of Alpha is making Arnhem Land and its 22,000 residents a negative emissions region especially when the opportunities to engage with new methodologies like sequestration at two times the emissions reduction rate is factored in. The impact of ALPHA's activities year in, year out, as well as 70 other registered savannah burning projects in Northern Australia can be seen in this slide. And it hasn't come up again, I don't know why. Anyway, I'll press on. What would an economic plan for delivering a safe climate look like? An economic plan needs to combine rapid decarbonisation, as, as is happening in Arnhem Land, alongside zero emissions renewable energy, alongside many other forms of adaptation, including reduced consumption that Indigenous Australians are very good at, given their monetary poverty. What part of the economy would need to be mobilised? Of crucial importance to the generation of zero emissions renewable energy will be access to indigenous titled lands exposed to some of the highest levels of solar irradiation in the world. Now, I'll try this device just to see if it works better. Okay. Some corporations already recognise this and are negotiating early agreements for multi-billion dollar projects like the Asian Renewable Energy Hub, in Western Australia and the Sun Cable Project in the Northern Territory. Decarbonisation, carbon reduction and sequestration will require access to Indigenous knowledge and labour, 
especially in regions where, the, where Aboriginal people constitute over 80% of the population. What management would be required? Indigenous owners have proven themselves as experts in land management and associated fire management. The game changer now is new forms of property. Fire and water are already legally recognised as native title rights. The focus must now switch to solar irradiation and wind as the property rights of land owners. Indigenous interests must resi resist forms of state cunning that have seen legally sanctioned theft of mineral rights and ongoing pandering to corporate extractive interests. How could the necessary goods and services and production be, delivered, be organised for delivery? The governance arrangements demonstrated by the Alpha Consortium, where nine ranger groups and literally hundreds of land-owning clans quickly mobilised to form a massive carbon reductions commons, is instructive. Indigenous landowners need to quickly form strategic, highly political regional alliances to properly control the renewable potential of their lands and waters. How to protect the vulnerable during the intense transition? 50% of Indigenous people in remote Australia live below the poverty line. Only three in 10 adults have paid work. A just transition might see them gain opportunities, not just in conservation work that is inadequately funded, but also with job guarantees and new re renewable ventures. Where does the finance come from? There are billions of black dollars paternalistically sequestered in several trust arrangements. These need to be liberated so that landowners can deploy them to finance indigenous equity in projects if they so wish. More importantly, the billions currently used to subsidize the carbon sector and boondogles like 225 billion for 12 new submarines need to be reallocated while ensuring equitable indigenous access. And a concluding comment, there is much Canberra talk about developing the North, imagined in old economy extractive ways, accumulation by dispossession. This dangerous discourse needs to be challenged to focus instead on developing Northern Australia for its land owners. This must happen according to the prerogative of the holders of native title rights and interests to over half the continent. Hopefully for us all, these landowners will show the same generosity in addressing the climate emergency as they've shown in addressing the associated biodiversity crisis. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, everyone. Just out of curiosity, in the room, everyone is interested in business side of climate, where the intersection happens a bit, I hope. Hands up. Um, the challenge of that, I assume, and the idea of the Green New Deal, New New Deal, uh, how we can look to maybe make a transition that's not just about uh, a climate transition, but an economic transition. <clears throat> so uh, last year and a half, I've done some work for a company called Climate Risk. Uh, most of you probably won't have ever heard. Tap one. Thanks. Um, we, just quickly, we've done, we have three different companies, but they focus all about understanding risk. 
And you might think, you know, why, who cares, blah, blah, blah. Insurance companies do this stuff all the time, but they don't tell you about risk, and they won't give the information away. They keep it very close to their chest. So they've been studying for decades the impact of fire, rain, cyclones, and storms, inundation, uh, all the things we know that are inevitably already happening because of climate change, but they're certainly happening more and more. Now, the challenge, of course, for most people is you get an insurance policy, and it's great, and then suddenly uh, something happens, giant three cyclones in a year, or bushfire comes through, and your rates start to rise. And you're wondering, how do they calculate all that? What's that all about? Well, they're not going to tell you. So. We've started doing this research ourselves by pulling together huge amounts of data from all over the world. It's a tricky combination of local government information, Royal Fire Service, international uh, data about climate and climate risk. <clears throat> we look at eight different areas and categories as we try to assess risk areas. And sometimes we do it for business, sometimes we do it and we just put it out. So three examples that you may or may not have heard or seen in the media. Um, we did an entire mortgage portfolio for the ComBank. So the Commonwealth Bank came to us and said, we don't know what our, com our risk is in our homes that we have mortgages in. Can you tell us? And they wanted it very quickly for an AGM, so we hired enormous computers and did their entire mortgage portfolio and came out with some information that is then useful to look at what does that risk mean. The second thing we did most recently with the ABC, we spent eight months putting together information about which areas are going to be the most uninsurable areas in the country. So you can go onto the ABC site, it's called uh, looking at the rise of the red zones, and you can put in your neighborhood or your postcode, it'll tell you, are you in a good area, are you in a bad area, what's that risk looking like? Uh, given for most people, property ownership is the biggest asset that they have, their home or a business or whatever. Understanding what that risk is is really, really important. But again, insurers aren't going to tell you ahead of time, guess what, you're looking at a really tricky area. But we can do that, and we can do it here on the climate valuation site just for homes. So before you buy a home, you want to look up to see is that risk, is it a good investment or is it not? So why climate risk? Uh, well, we're looking, we are absolutely staring it down in Australia. I would say we are the, currently the most climate risk nation in the world. Um, scientists, of course, told us this years ago that Australia would be at the cutting edge of this impacts hitting us. And guess what? We've found out that we really are in the most painful possible way. 33 people dead, thousands and thousands of hectares of land burned, half a billion animals or more uh, destroyed in the fires. So the fallout of this economically, and the reason I wanted to talk with you today a little bit around a new New Deal and a Green New Deal, is the urgency of including risk assessment and an understanding of climate risk as the impacts start to hit. Simply not being understood at a government level, certainly not at a business level, and not at a regulatory level. So the challenge for a company like Climate Risk is how can we campaign to push climate risk into the agenda nationally, and that's what we're trying to do. Just a few stats that have come out last week from the two of their bigger insurers about how the fires hail and other impacts have hit them. Uh, it's only February, so we still have a good several months to go both in the fire season but also to the end of the financial year. And most of them have already well blown out past their emergency funding. So what does that mean for us? Expensive insurance or in some cases no insurance in really risky areas. So the real costs and impact, uh, you know, we're now looking at climate refugees in Australia, people who are still living on the Oval in Cabargo because their home was taken out and they have no recourse. They don't have money, maybe they didn't have insurance to begin with, 
uh, and they can't rebuild fast enough. So how do we begin to address that? It's going to require, you know, we've heard a lot about that kind of wartime footing idea, but we are really going to have to change the way we think about risk in that kind of crisis sense, because it's already biting. It's already people impacted who've lost homes, have nowhere to go, and what do we do about that? The second kind of question it raises is, what about those areas that are ultimately uninsurable? And people just say, well, I'm going to keep living here, but I can't afford insurance because it's gone off the charts. That then falls to some degree on governments, whether it's state government, federal government, to look at how we step in and help uh, people. And therefore, we'd hope that kind of economic thinking would drive change about where we're allowed to build. Should we be building in areas that are simply undefendable? So some of this data information we're trying to use to push that agenda at the government level, but as well with people to understand, don't buy in areas that are low-lying, that are serious fire risks. It's not only a threat to you financially, it's a threat to your life. And ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, we have to become a lot more responsible in understanding what risk means as the impacts continue to grow. So these are two tools that we put forward. One is a business tool called EasyXDI, where you can look at all your assets. So if you're a telecom company, you're Telstra, you've got uh, all kinds of equipment and, and um, uh, satellite data and all those things to, in order to connect people, you can go online, put in every address you have, and check what kind of risk you've got. Similarly, climate valuation looks at your home. So before you buy a house, you look at, uh, you know, is it a good place to buy? Or is the one that I'm in now becoming a serious insurance uh, risk or too expensive to insure? So that's, no worries. That's uh, kind of what this company does. And the only reason we're here today is to say that within that Green New Deal lens or the New New Deal lens, risk has to be thinking ahead. We have to all be demanding that we have access to this kind of information. We have to be asking our governments to respond much more uh, pro progressively, thinking ahead to what those risks are going to look at. We've only warmed just past one degree. If we get to two degrees, three degrees, that level of risk goes off the charts. And I don't believe that either businesses or governments really understand what that means. And for all of us, that puts us at great risk. Thank you very much. Hi, everybody. Well, um, what I'd like to focus on is actually a continuation of the last plenary, um, looking at the types of governance and regulatory settings that you could use to assist in an emergency speed transition to a safe climate economy. So very much in Philip's sort of basket, focusing on the economy, but looking at how you get there in terms of regulatory instruments. Um, so clearly, we're trying to achieve a great deal extremely quickly. You know, if we're transitioning from a fossil fuel intensive economy to a zero emissions one in the timeframes discussed at this conference, it's a very tall order. Um, and we know that's only part of the challenge facing us. There are sessions at the conference that have talked about the need to draw down emissions as well. Um, the good news is that economic change on this scale is not unprecedented. And we've heard from a few people already, just in passing, that one of the places we can look to see an example of this and to gain some idea of how our government has dealt with it is the lead up to World War II in the US. So I actually want to spend a bit of time looking at what that actually looked like. Um, in the lead up to World War II in the US, the economy was switched in a matter of years from a civilian economy to the largest, most efficient wartime economy in the world. Only over, you know, a matter of years. The point here is not that the context was the war, it's to look at the magnitude and the speed of the change to the economy. Essentially, the US achieved enormous rapid change on the scale that we're advocating now, that we 
need to achieve now. So I think it's worth looking to see what insights we can take from that experience. For me, some of the most interesting governance and regulatory insights from that US experience include the following. First, the Congress delegated very broad war powers to the executive, particularly to the president. It chose to centralise power in the hands of just a few people. And a similar thing happened here in Australia and in the UK during World War II. Secondly, the US government's response to World War II was preceded by 20 years of planning. They actually started planning as soon as World War I finished <laughs> to see what they could learn from World War I. Thirdly, the US's wartime governance structures were very complex, with many different government agencies responsible for different aspects of the war effort. And that's not really surprising when you think about it. Uh, they faced a task of a similar magnitude to the one that we face now. They were trying to produce enough munitions, not just for themselves, but for the UK, and they were coming off a very low base. And they were also trying to ensure that their economy was stable in the face of this enormous diversion of resources, and that they, they could look after their citizens. Uh, and that was on top of all the other things they needed to do as a government. And we're facing a task of a similar magnitude to that, and a similar range of tasks. Uh, fourthly, despite all that planning, 20 years of planning, the US's governance response to the war was still very muddled. Uh, and there were many reasons for that. The size and the complexity of the task, the short time frames, the agencies fought each other, um, the fact that the war went through different stages and so on. And I'm sure that we will see all those things happening in the climate emergency. Um, fifthly, the government agencies involved in the war effort worked very closely with industry to meet the US's wartime production needs. And I think that's probably relevant to what we need to do here. Now, those are all, if you like, broad governance insights. There was also something that came out of the reading that I did for, um, for this, which is more to do with regulatory insights, regulatory measures used by the US during World War II. And that is that they included not just the types of regulatory measures that we're used to today, but um, a range of more coercive policy instruments, such as government directives determining priorities for the economy, and requiring certain industries to produce certain goods and services, and government directives stopping the production of certain goods and services, and rationing the availability of certain goods and services. So I don't have time to analyse here how each of these insights might actually apply in the climate emergency, but I do want to say that I think most of them will eventually apply quite strongly, and we should look at each of them to see what that might look like in more detail as we move forward and work out how to make best use of them and where, in fact, we need to improve a lot on what the US did. And some of the discussion in the last plenary is very much along those lines. Where do we need to make sure we have strong democratic safeguards in place? Um, for example, I think there's no doubt that at some point, as the climate emergency intensifies, we will see a centralisation of power here in Australia. This is what happens in times of true emergency. People centralise power to try and keep control of the crisis. I also think that we'll see the use of more coercive regulatory measures than we've been used to in recent decades. It's not impossible, for example, to imagine that certain activities relating to fossil fuels will end up being banned or rationed. And Philip actually gave some examples of those um, in, the, in the plenary session just a moment ago. It may seem rather shocking to contemplate that as a serious option, but it's worth considering our current context for a moment. We have had essentially stable economic and social conditions for many decades. That's what we're used to, and we're so used to being in this environment that it's truly difficult to imagine a different one, or to imagine using policy responses that have the potential to significantly interfere with the workings of the market, 
or our democratic rights. But I think we need to be sensible about this. A period of enormous change is coming our way, propelled by an increasingly unstable climate. We have only to look back over the last summer of fire to see how destabilising and devastating a changing climate can be. We know there will be far more crises to come over the ensuing decades. Peter Garrett has compared the order of magnitude and the seriousness of the threat of these crises to war. We need to plan for a time when instability rather than stability is the norm. And it may well be that by then, steps as, such as the ones that I've been talking about will be necessary in order for us to remain organised enough to achieve a rapid transition to a zero emissions economy and to respond to escalating climate-induced crises. Now, I want to emphasise that I'm not suggesting that power be centralised or more coercive regulatory measures be introduced without public support. What I think will happen is that by the time we're facing multiple climate crises, with constant damage to our economy from climate events and social and economic instability as a consequence, people's views about what is acceptable are likely to change and far more people will support steps like these. And I'll just finish with one last useful example from history. During World War II in Australia, the Commonwealth Government had the legal power to take any action necessary for the prosecution of war. And I was interested to hear what Philip said about the UK and its response you know, in uh, trying to prosecute war against the Nazis. Before Pearl Harbour, this very broad power that the Australian government had was barely used, uh, largely because there was very little public support for it. But after the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbour in late 1941 and the fall of Singapore in February 1942, public opinion changed a lot. And the federal government, which was a Labor government at the time, was able to take more action. And in fact, it prohibited a long list of non-essential industries with, um, according to one historian, the willing cooperation of the victims. So I think I'll leave you with the thought that large-scale rapid economic change is possible and has happened before. And we shouldn't forget, as we're planning the change to a safe climate economy, that governance and regulatory structures can be useful in helping to manage that change. Thank you. Thanks. What I'd like to do is cover uh, two things. Uh, one is around the, I guess, the, the politics of um, economic uh, transition plans and uh, how that relates to Green New Deals or, or anything of that sort. And the other one was just to sort of pick up a, a couple of the elements of the, of the actual economic change that, that we need to keep factoring into our thinking. The first one is in relation to the politics. Um, it's interesting to look at the way that the climate issue is faring in the United States versus the United Kingdom. Um, in the United States, the society is incredibly polarised and people on either side of the Republican-Democrat uh, divide basically sort of are getting to the point where they hate the people on the other side and they have no idea. Anyway, it's, 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 people won't marry into the wrong political party because it's too embarrassing. Um, in the UK because of a rather weird and slightly unfortunate thing. Uh, it was Margaret Thatcher who introduced the, um, the climate response. And so that meant that it came from the conservative side of politics. And so when you look at um, the declaration process in, around the world, the climate emergency declaration process, you find that in the United States, the declarations are all in Democrat areas. 
And in the United Kingdom, they're simply literally all over the place. They started with the Greens, they uh, moved to the Labor Party, started to, majority Labor Party Council started to make uh, emergency declarations. Then it moved to Liberal Democrat-led uh, areas and then the Conservatives started to take it on. And there are a very large number of Conservative councils that have actually had declaration, Conservative majority councils where they've had climate emergency declarations. So the issue I'm trying to raise is how do we approach the notion of economic transition um, in a way that can pr progress under whatever political circumstances we find ourselves in, barring one, one contingency. The one thing we can't cope with is having the federal and any other state or territory government or local government run by the fossil fuel industry. Like that's one thing we cannot put up with anymore. But the reality is that in a democracy, governments change, People get sick of one government and they'll vote for the other one for a, for a time. It's necessary to be able to work this issue across the aisle. It's, it, we should be getting really effective climate action, economic transition, to be so acceptable that it's like sewage. It's not a political issue, right? Sewage was once a very political issue, I have to say. If you go back to the 18, late 1800s, people had to campaign, public campaigns, to get sewage but it's not been a big deal since then, right? So what I'm really about, I suppose what I'm really suggesting is the language of the Green New Deal in itself is an interesting question. What's happened is that, um, I, I mean, the New Deal was obviously a Democrat um, development in the United States during the Depression to deal with the Depression. Um, it came, uh, it was promoted by what at the time was a, a fairly strongly left-wing government. And so, in a lot of people's minds, they, and particularly in America, they, they still reference back to that. And so what's happening is that many people are clustering a whole range of issues together around the Green New Deal um, so that it, for example, what is it, the $15 uh, uh, you know, um, minimum wage requirement has been packaged in with the Green New Deal. Um, and there are many other issues. I mean, in Australia, the, 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 um, the Greens have put um, a dental program as part of the Green New Deal. So what they're really doing is they're saying we must deal with climate and we have a series of other things that we care about really passionately. And by the way, as somebody with really bad teeth, I, just, I hope the Green New Deal comes through from the, from the Greens because I would really like to have some cheap dental work done quickly. So the, the, the what am I trying to say? What's happening is that every political party will, if, if they're going to treat climate seriously, they will end up putting their spin, their, their, their angle, and they'll add extra issues to whatever their economic program is. And that's up to them, and that's, that they're appealing to the electorate, and if the electorate responds to that, then that's how democracy works, and that's what should happen. But we, as I think, as climate activists, particularly if we're not only working through just one political party, if we're trying to work across many different parties or people who are not politically orientated, we have to be able to, to frame the notion of this economic transition in such a way that we could talk to anybody from any side of politics about it and have them treat what we're saying seriously. So I, I, guess, so I guess that's my, my really my main point. Everybody will do their climate deals differently according to their politics and that is absolutely to be expected and, and is, is totally legitimate in a democracy. Um, but what, what do we have to make, as climate campaigners, what do we have to make sure is in everybody's package so that no matter who wins, we get a decent result? 
And as I said, the, the first requirement is that we've got to get the fossil fuel uh, industry's claws out of government. But aside from that, we need to, to, to be focused on what needs to be done. Emphasise. Everybody's been talking about two, min two minutes or just... OK. <laughs> Every, everybody's been saying we've got to get to zero emissions. Now, that was the battle that started 10 years ago, right, when Beyond Zero Emissions um, started um, developing information about that. That's not the whole deal. We've got to actually cool the planet. The only way you can do that is that you've got to actually... Well, sorry, there's several ways you can do it, but the only sort of decent way of doing it as a long-term proposition is you've also got to get carbon dioxide out of the air we have to unmine all the coal, oil and gas that was released over the last 100, 200 years because it's, some of it's up in the air, some of it's, a lot of it's in the oceans and as we clean up the air, it'll come back out of the ocean. So we've got a big job. We've got to, we'll, and it, it took them 200 years to, to stuff things up. We're going to have to get it out of the air, hopefully, if we can do it, in less than 200 years. If you work out the mathematics of that, it means that the industry has to be bigger than the, the drawdown industry of all its various sorts has to be bigger than the coal, oil and gas industries combined. All right? Big job. That is going to have a big effect on any plans that people have for economies in terms... So, for example, the renewable energy system... I know I've only got no time left. The renewable energy system uh, is now reached the point of economics where it's actually economically beneficial. So it's driven now, as much as anything, by just corporate greed, right? Good old corporate greed on this particular occasion. So it's been, but drawdown is m probably not ever going to turn a total profit in itself. It's going to be a cost like health, uh, you know, defence or whatever. So we'll have to pay it out of taxes. So that is going to have a very big effect on budgets. It's going to have a very big effect on the way the economy is run. Anyway, that's all I have to say. But I think that we have to keep factoring in. The critical thing with our climate policy. I think is we have to focus on delivering maximum protection, which means that we have to keep on asking, who are we trying to protect? Who and what? You know, nat people, nature. What do they need to be protected? And how fast do they have? Does this have to be done? And what's the scale of the task? Once you know it's a big task and it's urgent, that becomes an emergency economic response. Thanks. Can I ask for a round of applause for our fantastic panel? Um, so I'm going to do two things now. I'm going to ask the panel to think about a question, uh, and then I'm going to ask you guys to talk amongst yourselves. So just one moment. Um, so for the panel, uh, while these guys are talking amongst themselves, I want you to be thinking about what's the most important thing that will be different, look different, work differently about our economy under the new New Deal that you are advocating. Uh, and for everybody in the audience, I'm going to give you two minutes. It's a hard two minutes. I want you to turn to the person next to you and just reflect on what you've heard so far and talk about what your burning question is for the panel. All right, we are going to start with these panellists' response to my question and then we are going to have yours, starting with John. Um, look, more and more of Australia is going to come under native title exclusive possession or non-exclusive possession and I would like to see um, indigenous people who want to engage in biodiversity conservation and zero carbon emissions industries um, for, you know assisted to, to participate in those industries rather than as currently the case blocked 
uh, by government, by short-termism, uh, by political partisanship, uh, by a lack of recognition of the contributions that are being made to making Australia more uh, you know, carbon and climate safe. So um, I just want to emphasise in saying that, though, that I do recognise the free prior informed consent requirements. So Indigenous people need to be invited to contribute, not coerced. And this might put us in some uh, conflict uh, with uh, some of the regulatory and governance regimes that may, way, may, we may want to see. But nevertheless, I think over 232 years now, uh, Indigenous interests have seen their lands exploited and, and some want to exploit their own lands for their own ends and we need to negotiate how that exploitation will not be destructive um, of the nation's future. Um, but there are certainly some extraordinary prospects and I see that in uh, biodiversity conservation, carbon abatement and now some of these zero emissions uh, energy uh, uh, production facilities occurring on Aboriginal land. Uh, everything that we've talked about here, and I'm sure that all of you thought about in a Green New Deal, New New Deal idea, it's going to cost money. So about six years ago, we started working with a guy called Sean Kidney, who had this crazy idea about climate bonds and green bonds, and how to ramp up the idea that this is a good investment, but you've got to tell people what that looks like, tick the boxes as to whether it's really a climate bond or really a green bond. <laughs> Uh, and even though that's going to be light on, that's going to be perfect. It won't be the, you know, this is an uh, enemy of the good thing here. It's got to be sort of just give people a ballpark to better versus bad. So you're not investing in a, f a giant dam, for instance, uh, as an energy source. You're looking at a renewable project. You know, can you distinguish between those things? So that market is now off the charts. Their goal for the next three years is a trillion dollars to um, look at a trillion dollar size of projects um, to tick as climate or green bonds. So it's moving fast. We hear little of it in Australia, but it's going to take climate and green bonds for us to address not only the transition, how we get off of fossil fuels and move to clean energy, but also to fund the preparedness that I mentioned. So if we're going to protect infrastructure as climate impacts happen, how is that going to be paid for? We're going to have to figure it out. And bonds are a great way to do that. It worked in the war. It can work for us now. Uh, okay, so what will the economy look like? Uh, it won't be based on fossil fuels. It will be based on activities and structures that lead to a safe climate economy that, you know, that regenerate and, well, yeah, that lead to a safe climate economy. I'll just stick with that. Um, and, hmm, I had another thought. It's gone. I'm going to pass over. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think what, what would be really helpful is um, for, for us as activists to campaign for a pizza with a lot. In other words, we, we've, got to, we've got to go for actually demanding that the economy is managed to deliver a safe climate restoration. And that, that will require an, an agency of government, whatever it happens to be, which is actually thinking about what needs to be protected, what they need, and what has to happen in the economy by when to deliver that result. 
and I suspect that the ana analysis of the um, what needs to be protected and what they, their needs are needs to be done by a separate agency that's not kind of going to be worried about the difficulty of making the economic change, but is looking at the basically the ethical and the interest questions of what needs to be done, and then that that is then provided to the economic agency to say, okay, these are the, these are the, the speed scale changes that need to be made in the economy, and it needs to be planned as an integrated package because if we do what we normally do, all of us and in governments included, we just simply have wish lists, we have little you know sort of shopping lists that we put together which are just whatever's on the top of our head at the moment and there's no systematic assessment to see whether this will actually deliver the protection that we all desire. Back to me. It was very much along the lines of what Philip was just saying. That I think it's um, it's been incredible to see the progress that renewables have made over the last decade in becoming economic, and so um, and the sort of initiatives that you're talking about there. You know, the free hand of the market can achieve so much, but I personally don't believe it can get all the way. And so we do actually need to help it along. Do some, you know, initiate some planning, proper planning, and make sure that the government is ready to step in with regulation as well if we're not making enough progress because this is so important. We have to get this right. Fantastic. Okay, hands. Can I have hands? And just a reminder, we're looking for questions, not shorter speeches disguised as questions. Um, woman up the front for starters. Um, I was wondering about, I was going to ask Carrie actually, what is the role of technology? Because everyone keeps harking back to the World War II. We know that is history. Now, I want to look forward to technology and I worry that we're putting too much onus on governments, but what about coordination rather than um, coerce, coercion and have we evolved beyond you know, World War II in, in our model of how things should be? Uh, I don't know that we... Ha One of our big constraints is uh, commercialization in the current system that we're in, which is not collaborative. It is competitive. Therefore, one of the things I mentioned was the secrecy aspect of insurance is one problem. Um, we haven't done a national risk assessment in this country in 10 years, so we just had the worst summer in our, in our known history. Um, and we didn't look ahead to say, what's that going to look like and how do we prepare? So somehow we have got to begin to think about collaboration uh, from a company and an industry and a you know, development sort of position away from just, I get that IP and I don't share it and I milk it for every buck I can get out of it. That's got to change. That's a pretty fundamental economic change. How do we do it? I don't know. I look to Scandinavia, which is a place that often just gets on with solving problems. And they still have uh, corporations, and they still have uh, IP, and people make profits. But there's a collaborative, a, a societal understanding that they cannot do it either just through business or just through government, but it, and society has to kind of jointly go around solving those problems. So I would say a Scandinavian-ish, more social democratic model is where we're headed. How we get countries like America and Australia to get their head around that, I couldn't tell you. But I think we have to go there. Maybe the wartime footing idea allows us an opportunity to, to adopt something more like that can be collaborative. Thanks. Just throw a rock in the pool. Um, we are talking about trying to make a huge ex exercise to sort of you know, save the world. The biggest critical issue at the moment, 
is the glaciers in, in Antarctica. Okay, so everyone's really, really aware that we could get some really nasty news which says we have passed the point of no return, that glacier will fail, it will fail between 10, 20, 30, 40 years, which means our decisions are where the hell are we going? Um, could you, like, so, so you're talking about what's the physical response look like? You know, the technological yeah, response. Three metres of um, yeah. sea rise coming in a foreseeable future. Yeah. Um, a, we need to cool the atmosphere, which will then cool the oceans, but it'll take a while for that to happen. But that means we've got to seriously look at not only drawdown, which will, could do the cooling over decades and hundreds of years, but we also have to seriously look at the, the use of solar reflection as a way of providing temperature relief. Now, that's a very sensitive subject that needs a lot of research and needs a lot of careful assessment. And you don't, like, you don't do it unless it's a net environmental protection benefit. Right? So, so that. The other thing, and this is, this is another weird thing, like three metres of sea rise is, it will wipe out all the major uh, deltas around the country. You think Vietnam, you think China, you, th you know, every, everywhere you go, right? Uh, Bangkok, I mean, whatever. Um, so it's not unreasonable to actually start thinking if, if there's, could you actually physically do some engineering to stop the ice breaking off? It's a weird thing. It's terrible that we've even got to the point where you have to contemplate this. But the consequences around the world, if you didn't, are probably so horrendous that it's actually probably cheaper and, and, and more ecologically sound to do it. But we, we, we need a safety mechanism. We need a system. We, we are heading into uh, unprecedented territory in what we have to contemplate and what we might have to do. Um, and so what I suggest is a safety approach which is kind of based... Oh, I won't give you the history of where this came from. Um, you need people to try and find solutions. The problem is that when people find solutions, they often begin to believe their own propaganda. They, they love their own solutions and they'll sell you them all the time. You need critics, right, to, to pull apart those ideas because, you know, the proponents often miss, miss things. The, the moral hazard with the critics is... Sorry. The moral hazard with the critics is that they just get interested in getting a scalp. Did I knock off this project? Did I stop solar reflection stuff being done? Uh, how good is that? Uh, and how many billion people died as a consequence? They didn't get to that part of it. So the moral, we've got a moral hazard from the proponents because they think that their stuff's too good. The critics just simply get into the point of wanting to destroy stuff. So we need a third kind of regulatory thing in this process, which is people whose job it is to work out whether people are playing fair, logically, scientifically based and that the arguments stack up on both sides of the proponent side and the critique side. And it sounds like an awful lot of over, you know, belt and braces type thing, but they tried it with... Um, the, the, the US military were losing submarines every two years out of wartime. They just not coming back to base because something went wrong in the sea, right? Anyway, a genius in the, in the Navy said, we, we can't keep on doing this. Um, and, <laughs> and they worked out a safety system which had all the belts and braces I just described, which is, that, you know, I won't go into the detail, but I can tell you more later if you want to know. But sometimes we have to actually have a slightly complex system to make sure that you get the, the dynamics right. That safety system was basically a regulatory or institutional one to balance the proponents of tech fixes against the opponents of tech fixes, well, basically. 
the, the, I mean, you might, you might have governments proposing solutions and working on it and getting research agencies to do it. It might be done through the private sector. It might be done through combinations. Uh, in other words, the issue is not so much... It, it's not a public versus private issue. It's how do you regulate the system? Now, the regulatory responsibility, I think, actually does lie with government, but they may have various partners, and some of those partners might be private sector, or they could be universities, or they could be all sorts of different organisations that are part of the deal. But you have to get the structure right, and the government's going to have to make sure that structure's in place. Great, thank you. Uh, we've got a woman in the third row there. It's a great segue, thank you. I, my question is around the private and uh, public partnerships. How do we unscramble the egg when we've um, handed over transport, uh, where we've um, locked ourselves into uh, transurban running transport for the entire East Corridor and the toll system, I think that it's not in their interest to be getting on board with this. How do we unscramble that egg? I mean, I can have a go at that one. Um, by the way, I, don't, I never introduced myself. My name's Miriam Lyons. I'm currently the organising director at GetUp, but I used to run the Centre for Policy Development. Um, uh, so uh, one of the things that I would actually approach that from is uh, possibly a little bit of a controversial one for Philip, but possibly not, um, uh, which is that privatisation is wildly unpopular. Right, um, there is a, actually a supermajority of public support in Australia for renationalising a bunch of things that people use in their day-to-day -day lives and realise they kind of suck. So what I would be suggesting is that actually, if Transurban is doing a really bad job uh, and polls tolls are incredibly unpopular, you could start by actually having a populist campaign to put transport back into public hands. You've got massive legal cases, which, have got, which is unaffordable. This is, you know, and within our legal structure, they're entitled to, to make that case. If it's popular enough, it will happen, right? So we saw that happen uh, with the Victorian uh, decision to cancel the East-West Link, for example, right? If um, all its legal approvals, it'll be done by the next government. It's already an approved project. It will be built. I guess what I'm t telling you is that uh, like giant public-private partnerships that screw over people for profit are unpopular and actually you could probably get uh, parties to be quite popular and win a lot of votes by promising to like actually transform that system. Um, yeah. Um, okay, next uh, we've got... Uh, yeah, just the woman in black there. Um, the one thing that I've noticed that's really missing from this conference actually is um, there's just very little talk about the local and there's a lot of talk about, you know, big picture government, big government, but actually we all really know <laughs> that the local is the most important and that's actually, um, in fact, if you're going to make a mistake, it's better to make a mistake at the local level because if you make a mistake at the big level, <laughs> you're screwed. So anyway, I just wanted to say, just I want to bring that up because there's really, be, really been no emphasis. Oh, at I this think the mayor's section yesterday was pretty uplifting. I was there and it was really inspiring to hear Darabin, ACT, Sydney, Melbourne talk about how fast they're driving emissions down through real on the ground programs. 
Um, and you may not know that just this morning there was a half day, 180, 165 councils all together who've all passed uh, climate emergency motions talking about how they work together to deliver that and how they have a network where they can share that learning that you're talking about. So if somebody succeeds in one fantastic program, they can share that with the whole network of you know, uh, uh, these councils have signed on. So I think 84 councils have passed client emergencies, but 160 odd were there today to talk about being in this network. So although you don't hear it lots loud and proud, um, they're really doing great work and they are talking and organizing amongst themselves. Uh, and we would do a great national justice if we turned quite a lot of this federal stuff back toward local where they're on the ground, they know how to do it, they know how much it costs, they know the challenges, they know what they can do and what they can do with their, you know, their rate payers, what they, is supported. And a lot of the action we're talking about is supported at the council level. They want renewables, they want better transport, they want, you know, they want to see recycling actually working. Federally, that stuff often gets lost, but on the ground, it's you know, the, the councils that are doing that work. All right, we're just going to have one final question from up the back because we are nearly out of time. Um, who's got the mic? Um, hopefully this isn't too long then. If you could suggest an actual regulation that would accurately refocus the health of the economy to the well-being and, the, and sustainability, what would your suggestion be? Good, good one to end, end with for the panel. Do you want to pass the mic along? Um, I worked with Environment Justice Australia to produce a model act that could be implemented at the state and territory level to ban all new bad investment in climate damaging activities. Um, and so if we could get that campaign going, then it's already beginning a bit in South, sorry, the campaign's beginning a bit in South Australia. Um, but um, I mean, yeah, the, the places that are most likely to work because the, the, the governments are less controlled by export fossil fuel industries are uh, ACT, uh, South Australia, Tasmania, Victoria is a bit of a line ball case, and New South Wales is a bit more line ball. But um, I, I would try those states or territories first. Um, so interested in talking about it. Yeah, I agree with Philip, but uh, just uh, band fracking, um, particularly um, in remote Australia, where you know some of the most arid parts of Australia. You know, have fracking proposals which uh, warm the climate but also utilise uh, fresh water from aquifers so they're just making, you know, they're reducing biodiversity and warming the climate in places that predictions are showing us are already getting warmer and will, if, if things keep going as they are, will be uninhabitable in the next 20 years. Another great example of a policy that already has a super majority of public support. Um, thank you so much to our panel. Please give them and yourselves a big round of applause. This was a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. 